I mean, for me, as a young female, as someone who looked really different in my community, that I didn't really realize that, as someone who's multiracial, dark-skinned, and a woman in these male-dominated sports, I mean, a lot of people still look at me and they're like, you put on armor and you jump off cliffs? I knew a place to go to, which was outdoors, which was those mountains. That is huge for someone who's young. It's huge for a young female, is no matter what it is for you, what is that one place where you just know who you are and you really like who you are too. Welcome to the Ocean State of Mind podcast, where we explore how mindfulness and a stronger human nature connection may save our oceans and can help each of us learn to live healthier, thriving lives in concert with our ocean planet. We are a proud project of the Ocean Foundation. How can you connect to your inner wisdom when confronting fear? How can nature help you discover your true self and identity and not the labels the world may put on you? How do we return to our instincts? In this episode, we go from the oceans to the mountaintops with Sasha Dingle, a professional skier, mountain biker, and now founder of the Mountain Mind Project. Sasha's time in the mountains was a doorway to her strongest instincts, answers she had inside of her all along. Let's drop in. Hey, Damon. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. I know we never got a chance to connect outside of the course, but I could talk about this all day long. So <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. 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 Me too. You and I met in uh, a class on inquiry for mindfulness instructors, mm-hmm. which was just a, uh, an amazing experience. And I've been looking into your world over the last couple of days and you've had a quite a long time of competitively skiing and mountain biking and what looks like you've distilled a lot of things from being out in nature and have brought it into a newer path of life and work and I wonder if you could just say hello introduce yourself and share a little bit about who you are or what you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I'm really excited to have this conversation because there is a lot of alignment in the work we do and what inspires it with these different doorways in the ocean and the mountains. So it's neat when you can kind of see that reflected back, you know, from a different vantage point. So I, through Mountain Mind Project, which is my little organization out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I teach mindfulness meditation, supporting individuals to engage with their life through training your mind. And yes, the mountains are inherently in the the work that I do, as you can probably tell from, from the name of the organization. And it's really, you know, pulling from both resilience moments when that's needed, as well as performance moments. And so it's really the same kind of people that I work with. They're really motivated, they're engaged, they, you know, are wanting to engage in their life in a different way and make some change. And whether it's therapeutic resilience or which is MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction or performance depends more on what's their life circumstance right now. Yeah. That's super interesting. I want to dive into the mountain mind project, but I I've got to, I've got to ask, you know, so I, I I did a Google search of you (laughs) and I had one of my, my eight-year-old daughter was sort of sitting on my lap and we brought up a, a video of you in the free ride world 
ski tour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm used to seeing ski races where, you know, the skier is doing everything they can to stay on the trail and sort of stay in between the flags. Yeah. And as far as we could tell, you were doing everything you could to get off the trail <laughs> and and find some huge cliff to huck yourself off of. And uh, <laughs> I thought if you could just maybe start with explaining what free riding is sure. and what attracted you to that type of skiing. Yeah. Well, I started with the ski racing. So I started within the gates or the uh, on the trail, um, started doing that in elementary school, kept racing until I pivoted when I was uh, 20 for, for free ride. And yes, it's a competition that takes place kind of off piste off the trail. They're really these untracked mountain, you know, they're frequently out of bounds. Um, you used to get dropped off in a helicopter and then you do your run. Yeah. And you get extra points for line choice and if you're kind of going and narrow shoots and off cliffs. But it started on in the resort and then branched out. And both are needed for me now. You know, I, I explore a lot in the backcountry and that adds something to my week that I, I really need to kind of remember who I am and what I what I want to remember. But I ski in the resort too. So we get to play there as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, well, I, we were watching a video and both my daughter, Maya and I are going, Oh God, she's going to the, Oh, oh she's going towards these cliffs. Oh. <laughs> then we started realizing you were intentionally heading towards the cliffs. So it's sort of a, um, an interesting thing. And I, I don't know I if it. this is, is, if this is pushing it, is there is sort of, leaving the traditional path or even looking for cliffs is is that um suggest something that we might know about you as a person or is that a, a metaphor too far hmm. um i don't know if it's a metaphor too far and i i love i mean i think of that competitive life that athlete life in the mountains as a living metaphor so that's where i go to look and to find all the information when I need to make a decision in my life, where to go left or right, you know? So I definitely look to that for a lot of metaphors. I don't always head for the cliffs. I like to think that sometimes I, you know, veer, um, can toe the line of, um, no, you know what it is really? There is a piece around what appears kind of reckless or in these extreme sports or gravity sports, which I'm sure you can relate to in surfing. For those of us who are living within that, we don't feel like we're pushing it or we know, you know, it's, it's your, you're managing all the risks that you can control within an inherent risk environment. So there's a huge metaphor for that. And even how I lead and pick my teams and all kinds of things. Yeah. You said, uh, you know, I saw in the article you wrote in, in the magazine mindful that the, the self-awareness, the mental approach to years of skiing and, and mountain biking were your, I think you said, doorway into contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. Can you say a bit about what that path looked like in, in that doorway? Yeah. So I really love that your your daughter was watching this video with you because I, so I started mountain biking when I was around eight or nine and ski racing when I was 10. And Around that same time was when I first followed my dad to yoga class, to Iyengar yoga class. So, um, you know, I think for me living up in Vermont and being, which has a really 
growing up in Vermont and having a really strong sense of place and connection to the natural world that kind of built in this contemplative nature. But um, also those three kind of activities combined could have brought that contemplative nature to how I approached my sports. You know, I don't think every extreme athlete, gravity athlete has um, approaches it that way, but it was really reflective for me. It was a constant kind of refining of my mind and my body. And I felt most at home in, in the woods, in the mountains. And so I think that gave a contemplative lean as well. Um, so, you know, you just standing at the top of a course, you just had to train your mind to be ready to go. You, you, we had this mantra of, you know, you can't ski afraid or it'll be more dangerous. And so we just were little high schoolers not letting ourselves feel fear so you could go down a ski hill as fast as you drive down the interstate. Um, yeah, so there was a mind training element and then it grew into something that was more deliberate and I could kind of learn from others to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there experiences, you know, that really stand out of being out in the mountains as the times the mountain was teaching you? Yeah, there's one recent and then I'll uh, pull up one too that has just stuck with me across a, a couple of years. So I was just this past weekend out and I'm visiting my brother who's in northern Montana right now up at Glacier National Park. So but we went out together with his girlfriend and just went backcountry skiing in an area where there had been, I think it was 40 or 50 avalanches at one point throughout the season. And so it was a mile of trees that are 30, 40 foot trees just all knocked over um, and had run this long with the snow just coming through. And, you know, standing in that, you feel so small. And it was just this this pretty striking confronting thing that it's good to feel small and it's good to know that there's weather that constantly swirls around us. And, you know, these, what I get to do in my life, what I get to do in the mountains, a lot of it, the weather gets to decide and you just sort of have to, you know, dress appropriately or change course as a result. So that was one that was recent and was just pretty cool to receive, um, that realization during the pandemic, when there is so much change and ambiguity continuing to happen, the ground just keeps getting pulled out from under us, you know? So it's like day to day, we have to make those adjustments with the the weather of moods and conditions. And then another one that really stuck with me and I shared with other skiers that I've worked with and are in my life was I was filming with Jackson Hole Mountain Resort with a group of women, which was, it's always kind of cool when you get a, a group of women out together doing this. Um, and there were these two lines. It was, and so as we were heading up the mountain, it was, we kind of did like the guys take this line and the women take this other line. And the one that this group of three women, four women were going to ski was the harder line. It's the one that you had to, you had to sign out of the resort, you know, saying like they don't have liability anymore. Um, and it looked really intimidating because the takeoff, you couldn't see your, your landing until you were already in the air. And so, um, there was a more veteran skier up there with me. who was helping me to kind of stomp off, stomp out the takeoff. And, um, I remember he said, it's okay if you feel fear right now, it's normal to feel fear. Any, any normal human looking at this would feel afraid. And then there's the question of you're aware of that, you decipher that. Does it mean that 
I'm afraid because it's dangerous and I better back out today? Or am I feeling afraid because it's just, it's a scary looking thing and it's really within my abilities. And so I'm ready to go. So yeah, I've taken that with me because I think a lot of people, skiers, others think, you know, I'm never supposed to feel afraid if I'm still meditators, if I'm still feeling these strong emotions, must be that my practice hasn't developed at all. And really it's like, no, it still shows up. And that was a great example of that. And you still have the choice and the the self-management that can come after with the awareness. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, Cliff you mentioned is one where you have to take off and you can't see the landing until you're you're already over. <laughs> you're already in it. Yeah. Isn't there so much of life that's like that? I don't know if you're a climber too. I'm not. I'm da- I'm just dabbling. I've been a beginner climber, rock climber forever. But um that makes me think of a metaphor that I've been using in teaching MBSR of um I don't trust my feet as a new climber. I don't trust that the shoe's going to stick. And I struggle to just stand up and commit differently, I guess, from that skiing example. But, um, and I had a friend who's a more experienced climber just say, you know, another inch, another world, right? Like you just kind of push off where you do have purchase in your life, even if you don't see the whole path. And as soon as you take that next move, this whole world opens up that you couldn't even see when you were down below before that move. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. It makes a tremendous amount of sense too, as you know, I've climbed a bit in gyms and outside and there's those times where I can get totally frozen, terrified, right? And then a slight shift and you realize, oh, I had to, you know, I had to just shift my weight slightly and that's what got me through. Right. Yeah. Just yeah. one more inch. That's uh that's Yeah, great. another inch, another world. Yeah. Yeah. Whole new um, world. Mm-hmm. Can't see it. Can you share a little bit about what the Mountain Mind Project is? And is there is there a mountain mind that you refer to when you're using that term? Yeah, definitely. It's very engaged with life. It's very responsive, right? So it's not meditating in a vacuum. There's always the conditions that we're responding to and, and mirroring off of even to build awareness. So there's the self, there's others, and then there's the environment that surround the individual that I'm working with. And so all of that helps to reflect back the learning, the discoveries, and is also where you place your attention as you train it and where you end up, even if it's just secondary effects, impacting, right? Because as we build awareness, we start to kind of see how we're impacting other people in the environment around us and also how that comes and hits us and informs how we feel, how our body feels, what we do in our life. Yeah. So I think it's building relationship to what's around us, these other people and ourselves, and again, can have secondary effects on then from caring, then what happens, you know, like I now care what I'm putting into my body. I care if I get to feel the sun instead of being stuck inside in my house all the time in quarantine. So maybe I want more of that and actually change my life in order to, to get more of that. You know, you use the term, the ability to live fully can be trained. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can talk about what does it mean to live fully for you in in that context? And what what are some of the training techniques you use with with clients in your classes? 
Yeah. So the ability to live fully can be trained is is meant to speak to that idea that these things are all trainable. Anything, you know, that we we care about getting better at, we can chip away and train toward that the same way we train our body, we can train our minds. And it also kind of highlights that we have this stuff in us, you know, I'm, I'm sort of supporting and fostering with this process. Um, but there's a lot of capacity in each of us. So there's a, there's a deep kind of trust element of that. And living fully to me is, again, it's, it's that, ex- that range of resilience training to performance. It's, you know, you're getting the whole full range of life thrown at you. Can you be with that no matter what comes at you? all those vicissitudes, you know, the injuries, the need for rest, and when you're ready to go and you're ready to take what's already working to the next level. That's living fully to me. So, yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, one of the, one of the pieces you wrote about was in these times of high stress, this, this sort of need for resilience, but also need for renewal. Mm Mm-hmm. And even sort of building out, building more, you know, things that renew one or, or um, you know, give us sort of positive energy. And I wonder, for you in this time, what are what are the things that you're doing now that are bringing Sasha renewal? Yeah, and that came from my work with Daniel Goldman's team. It was really that that personal sustainability index that was developed by Daniel Goldman and Richard Boyatzis, looking at that balance of renewal and stress. And no question, I need more renewal because the the stressed load is higher. I'm finding that in movement, in dance, actually. I'm not a dancer. I'm not a trained dancer, but I guess I like to move. So then you get to, maybe you are a dancer. But um, yeah, I've been streaming in dance classes. I feel pretty lucky that I have access to that now that everything's online um, back in my home community in Jackson. And uh, movement has felt so key. So even pairing meditations with a little movement before I actually taught a meditation for a community group the other day, and I turned on some music and we did some really accessible dance moves because I do think that pairing helps when we're getting flooded with these stress hormones. And it's like, for me, it feels like I need to do something to get that out. I live in a place where I can still get out far away from everybody else and go biking, go running, go skiing, which I feel very lucky to still have. So, so getting to be, be outside and, and moving adds a lot of renewal. But it's hard. I mean, you know, we're grabbing for stuff to just get to baseline, it feels like sometimes right now. It does feel like a moment where the, the world is reawakening to the importance of nature. And maybe this is sort of classic when, when things are taken away. You desire them more. And Ocean State of Mind has a focus around ocean conservation. And so those of us in that sort of field of environmental sustainability, I think there's some real optimism that the the healing experiences the world is going through by being out in nature may be the type of waking up, you know, to our the climate action and climate change is like the time is now. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I've never been so proud in a way that I didn't realize I even felt proud around to work from home and have my own organization. When I started to see what it what it looks like when there are fewer cars on the road, the skies near Wuhan are 
clearer some days. Or, you know, I had friends in Italy who were telling me the canals in Venice are running clear. And that's pretty powerful to see. I think it's something that we didn't even know we could get to. And to, to really build a new paradigm, you have to know that that's out there and kind of feel that first. So this gave us an opportunity to, to really see what we're capable of. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that this is really hard and people react in different ways to what feels hard and uncomfortable. And so um, I think in order to get to where you're describing, which I do hope for also, uh, there's this need to continue to keep opening to feeling how hard that is. Because if we shut down, you know, we, we only want to run to rural communities and, you know, the beach and the mountain and the parks, and we forget how bad it felt to be stuck indoors all the time. And once again, we become a culture and a society that's primarily indoors and getting, you know, more and more disembodied, I would say, because of how much time we're on tech and indoors and not connected to how our bodies actually feel, then those lessons don't stick. So I think the way in which we encounter this is the what could make the difference. I wonder if I want to shift gears to perhaps seven-year-old Sasha, and I'll explain. <laughs> you shared a, cu- a couple of things. One was a, uh, I saw a TED Talk by Carol McHugh, which was really amazing, where she had talked about the, the, the two times in our life that we're most like ourselves. One, when we're very young, really like below the age of seven, mm. where we start sort of picking up these identities that society has started landing on us. And also when we're very old. You also wrote a love letter to yourself as a as a young girl. Yeah. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And, and all the other female mountain bikers out there in the world. Yes. Yep. Yes. Which I really appreciate it. And one of the things you said was, and I wrote it down, so I'm just going to read it, but form your dreams and identity from the core and enduring pieces of you that you want to be. Mm-hmm. And um, so the question, I guess, is are there core and enduring pieces that perhaps Sasha had as a six or seven year old that have stayed with you? Hmm. That's a really good question. Cause there's a reason why I wrote that love letter when in my thirties, instead of when I was seven, when I actually had realized the things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. And I am saying this not just because our connection is these these amazing natural places, but I did find that in the mountains. I mean, for me, as a as a young female, you know, as someone who looked really different in my community that I didn't really realize that, as someone who's multiracial, dark-skinned, and a woman in these male-dominated sports. I mean, a lot of people still look at me and they're like, you put on armor and you jump off cliffs? Like, you're so, you've got this like sweet voice and you're little. And so I love those juxtapositions about myself. And I love finding juxtapositions in other people. And I love it when we surprise each other. Uh, so that was enduring. I was a juxtaposition um, and I loved that. And also I think the piece around knowing that there was somewhere in my life where I knew who I was, or I knew what that felt like. I knew a place to go to, which was outdoors, which was those mountains. That is huge for someone who's young. It's huge for a young female is no matter what it is for you, what is that one place where you just know who you are and you really like who you are too. 
So I just talked to my friend who's going to, we did an interview for the podcast, Lindsay Hawkins. She talks a lot about the deep trust that she has of nature and for nature and that, and she lives on a small island off the coast of uh, the UK. The times where she has lost track of the tides is the time she needs to start paying attention because her, you know, she's stopped paying attention to things that are really important. Hmm. And it's interesting when, when I hear you say get, getting outdoors is a place where you could feel yourself. And it, it made me think of in our mindfulness practice, we talk about paying attention to things that arise in the present moment without judgment. And I wonder, is, is part of that feeling like yourself and you're, you're in a judgment-free zone? Your nature isn't saying you're, you're good or bad mm. or short or tall or anything else. Yeah. 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 And for a long period of my life, that was the place. And those were the kind of activities where how I experienced myself matched how other people saw me. So when I was on my skis, when I was on my bike, when I was out doing these things, exploring and adventuring, now there are more places as an adult, but especially when I was young, it was like, that was the place where that, that resonance between inner and outer actually occurred. Can can you say more about that, that resonance of inner and outer? Yeah. I mean, we form so many initial assumptions about people based on how they look. And I don't, haven't fit, I think, what I've seen and what others have seen as far as what, you know, a ambitious, successful mountain athlete looks like, you know, I'm um, half Vietnamese and didn't fit what I saw around me as, as kind of the norm in those spaces. And also, you know, I still have even grown women tell me that it's so like they get so excited about the mountain bike background or the skiing background, because still to them, it's, it's, you know, men take risks in that way. And they also still don't see themselves represented in, in some of those sports or in kind of like downhill mountain biking. Yeah. So it was kind of like my fun alter ego that I got to have myself, but that I knew it was there. And that was the core piece of my identity for me and felt very natural and normal. And so it matched in those environments versus when I was in school or even more recently, you know, working in healthcare HR and working with developing directors and managers and, you know, being a young female in that environment, I had to do a lot of things that didn't feel like me, just kind of armoring up and being sort of tough to an extreme that didn't feel like me. So I had to kind of mismatch myself to fit the environment Mm. in other places. That's yeah. Do I have this right that you you've also either run or uh, a class on I think called flourishing for maybe middle school kids? Yeah. So I taught. Uh, this is from a separate organization, the Flourish Foundation. Um, taught the curriculum that they developed to fifth graders for for three years in the school year. So would go into the same classrooms every Friday and work with the same kids and kind of co-teach with their their regular teacher this mindful awareness class. Mm-hmm. I was I was wondering if there are, are pieces around this identity development that show up in in that course as well, or is it more focused around focus yeah. and, and 
emotional flexibility. It's constantly in there as that byproduct of, because if you're exploring yourself, you're exploring who you are in the room and the the environment that you're in and other people. And um, I think how that informs how I teach is I, is that responsiveness, is that modification with each individual, which I think parallels really well physical exercise and how you train, you know, as a personal trainer or something in the gym with somebody. You're, you're, you're constantly modifying based on what they're coming in the room with and injuries, you know, really tired muscles because they just ran a marathon, whatever it is. And so with the kids, I really wanted them to, to understand that the end goal of all of this is their ability to trust in themselves and the signals that are showing up as they pay attention to their experience and then modify. And it wasn't about me telling them your eyes are supposed to be closed or they're supposed to be open or you're supposed to be still or you're supposed to move. They had all these options available uh, and they learned to use them based on what they were noticing that they really needed right now. Mm. So yeah, I'm definitely someone who from my own experience, there is no one mold for anything, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll try to break it. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I uncovered one other thing in, in uh, something you'd shared online, which I just, I, I really love. And so I want to ask you a question about it. One was um, just an activity of exploring other languages that may have words for emotions that perhaps aren't present in our, you know, in our current lives or society or culture. And I wonder if you have favorite words from other languages Mm. um, that touch on emotions that we may not have words for. Definitely. I still need to do my vocab list with that list because there are some good ones that speak to experiences like feeling alive in a cold wind that I don't I don't remember the word for it, but I've had that experience. So I grew up studying French in school. It, that was the second language of the Vietnamese side of my family. So at that point, I thought I would never speak Vietnamese. So I better learn French if I'm going to speak to my grandparents. I also lived by Quebec. But And I also, when I was 23, went to go work in Vietnam and teach at a university and started to learn Vietnamese at that place or at that point. And so when I was in Vietnam, I'd be having, there were a lot of French expats there. And so I'd have dinner in French, you know, I'd have lunch in Vietnamese. And that's the first time I experienced this. I started to see through my friends and learning these different languages all at the same, at the same time that there are big gaps in English. And there are also big gaps in Vietnamese and there, there aren't ways to express them. So I had Viet Q is the word for the Vietnamese diaspora in Vietnamese. And it looks very diverse. It's, you know, scattered across France and the US and Vietnam. And it's so there, they have a word for this mixed heritage, which in the US or in, in English, I never had a word for that. You know, like as a kid, I would say, I would joke, I'm a mutt, which you know, it's playful, but it's sort of, there's not a lot of positivity in that. Uh, But, you know, multiracial, mixed race, like these things don't capture that. And so French has this word, métis, which has a really beautiful connotation to it. And it's something that's valued and admired and kind of exotic. And so it had this beautiful, positive quality to it. And I realized that there was a word in a different language to explain an experience that I had, but had no way to 
articulate other than something that was sort of either neutral or kind of negative. And then even in Vietnamese, the, you know, kind of the parallel word, Kon Lai, at one point meant children of dust. It was like this very derogatory kind of lower class society because it was a reminder of something really painful for the society, kind of like these mixed race kids that were a reminder of the Vietnam War, the American War, they called it. So yeah, that was my first vantage point on this, that there are big gaps. And sometimes they they work in our favor. I mean, I because they're shaped by something that's valuable in the culture. I think in Vietnam, there's no no way in Vietnamese, if I remember to say, should have or would have. So you just can't express regret. And so you end up with this really resilient society that is just ready to move on and be like, that's so long ago. What are you, you know, why are you worried about it still? <laughs> so yeah, it's neat to explore that way. Yeah, language really does shape experience and comes from experience too. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, Matisse, it's a beautiful, a beautiful term. And I love that there aren't there aren't words around regret. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. And the impacts of that I experienced when I was there, I really do think this resilience sort of came from, you couldn't even express it if you wanted to. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, wow. Well, I know we're sort of coming up on time. I, I'd love to ask if you've got any good book reads going these days. Hmm. Um... I have a, a lot I'm reading simultaneously. So uh, I picked up Women Who Run With the Wolves recently, which I'm kind of reading like I it's a book that I haven't ever been able to read straight through. It's I pick up a chapter that kind of resonates and it's all these different stories like Bluebeard and the red the girl with the red shoes or and their their arch- archetypes to look at for the experience of women kind of coming back to this instinctual, intuitive, informed nature. So I thought I I I um thought I came across some wolf tracks. They might have been mountain lion tracks, but I was getting really excited by wolves at one point recently. So I grabbed the book. I thought that fit. Um and then I'm also reading Radical Dharma right now. And I, yeah, I just I just bought that three days ago. Really, yeah. And these are books that I've been carrying around for a while, and then just it's the right time to pick them up. So, yeah, they're resonating right now. Yeah, with this engaged kind of a return to strong instinct for me, and um, that being something that's needed, and this way of engaging with the world with this meditation practice that can feel so individual a lot of the time, but it's not in a vacuum. Yeah. So radical Dharma is the one for that. Those are great. I will, um, I will look those up, but you just said a, a, a really interesting phrase, a return to strong instinct. Say more. Yeah. This time in my house at home for me has been, it feels like everything's kind of heightened. And yet for me, there's been so much time at home alone that's quiet and it's an opportunity to, to kind of notice those signals in a more heightened way that definitely we're able to get lost in a really fast paced 
work environment that I was in consulting on a project right before the pandemic. And so it's really felt like a return to uh, kind of strengthen those and then use that to inform some skilled action in the world. Well, it sounds like you've got quite a few skills that you've put into action in the world with the Mountain Mind Project. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us this week and sharing sharing those skills, sharing your, your gifts uh, with us, but also with your community. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for this opportunity to chat with you. It's been really fun and thought-provoking questions that were a lot of fun to, to think about and answer. Awesome. Well, um, from the ocean state of mind to the mountain mind, um, thank you, Sasha. I love it. Yeah, I love it. From mountain mind to the ocean state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, we'll... Um, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm excited to check out your work more as well. I mean, I, it's, I uh, have a friend that I visited in San Diego who moved from Jackson a couple years ago and we were, she was going to take me surfing when I was visiting and then it rained and she said, she was like, oh, we can't go. We can't go for a while. You know, you can get staff. And I just, it helped me to realize that you know, the, the oceans are where you spot these things first, you know, the mountains are kind of, it's like the, the runoffs, but we see the impact of, of, of human activity, I think sooner in a lot of ways in our, what we're seeing in our oceans. So, yeah. 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 It's, it's important work and it's connected. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's, it can be scary times, you know, in, when you start looking at what's happening with the oceans and, and what, how that's going to impact everything, you know, it covers three fourths of the whole planet and, mm -hmm. you know, cr creates quite a bit of the oxygen. And so part of it is aggregating the research around basically putting mindfulness to work for ocean conservation, mm -hmm. um, environmental sustainability efforts writ large, but our focus is more on the ocean and, and then just beginning to just get these stories out to start raising awareness in an interesting way. Yeah. So the podcast is just going to be happening throughout the year. And, and we had some retreats and whatnot planned that are looking at baking in some of the evidence-based work on mindfulness and, and its connection with ecological behavior. Mm -hmm. And we'll just see, we'll have to see what those look like, Yeah. <laughs> what, what retreats look like in the yeah. coming yeah. months. But Right, right. I don't know what options there are to do in virtual if that's what we're still doing. But yeah, well, I'm excited to keep an eye on it and I'll look out for the work you're doing and stay in touch. I The pro bono work I've been doing over the last couple of years um, has been to change makers taking on social issues in their community or climate issues. So with Coalition Wild was one and then Shift is an organization in Jackson Hole that they recently just switched their mission to be all about building a case for public lands based on public it being a public health resource before they were had more of a variety of just kind of building reasons why we should care about conservation and um, climate action. So, oh, yeah. wow. I, I will have to look that up. A couple of the women that I, or friends of mine that are on the podcast that live in the, in Ireland and England where they have the blue and green nature prescriptions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which are literally right. from the doctor baked into the health insurance. Yeah. And it's a get outside pill, except there's yeah. no pill. You're just getting outside. Exactly. Yeah. Are you aware? Do any, are, do any states, and I don't, I don't think we have that in the U.S. 
Yeah. We, the, I don't know. We had some, or there were some physicians presenting on that topic, but I can't remember where they were coming from with the last shift festival. Yeah, I I need to catch up more on exactly where it looks. I know there was some legislation that was being knocked around a year or so ago, but that's just like that's the piece. And it's, you know, an apple yeah. a day keeps the doctor away. It was like one of those things that can stick into people's thoughts of eat more fresh food and really getting outside. It's yeah. the same thing. So I uh, I don't have a rhyme for it yet, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I got nothing. I'm, I, this is terrible. I, this is why I'm not a marketing person, but I've got like, get outside. It'll save your hide. This is not yeah, going to stick. There we but go. that's all I got. No, <laughs> yeah. Done. No. Cool. Yeah. I really, I'm, I think it's a key time to, to keep supporting ways for people to feel this, this, this moment that then can inspire a different paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's a great place to end. Thanks again. This has been a real privilege for me and um, look forward to keeping in contact. Perfect. Thanks so much, Damien. Be well. Appreciate it. You too. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Ocean State of Mind. What a treat to have Sasha Dingle from the Mountain Mind Project. Thanks, Sasha. In our next episode, we have author Elizabeth Rush. Her book, Rising, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Elizabeth takes us on a fascinating, poetic, and at times terrifying journey through American communities that are facing the biggest impacts from sea level rise. She'll also explain what she was doing in Antarctica with tranquilizer guns putting transponders onto 2,000-pound elephant seals. That's next. See you there.